Any comments about the rugby, though? Because last time I publicly declared an England victory, we lost to Wales in the World Cup. So I, I've been humbled by that experience. Um, well, it's great to be with you uh, this morning. And uh, it's really wonderful um, to be together, isn't it? Um, I want to speak this morning about the subject of the search for love. Um, which, um, if you know anything about me, you might think is a rather ironic topic to pick, um, given the fact he's single in his mid-thirties, um, and also particularly given uh, some of the stories I could tell you. I'll only tell you one uh, as we start. Um, Fourteen years ago, when I first moved to Bournemouth, I was dating a girl who lived in the States. Uh, she had quite wealthy parents, and they decided to invite me uh, to go on their annual skiing holiday, which is very exciting. Uh, the only problem was um, they had been skiing every year since she had been born, I had never been skiing in my life. Uh, so I went and I got some lessons at Matcham's just up the road. And after three hours of beginner lessons, I basically figured I was ready for the Rockies of Colorado. And so I headed out um, to the Rockies. I hadn't paid much attention, I have to say, in my lessons, because all these things would teach you to do was how to stop, which seemed rather counterintuitive to me. Um, I wanted to know how to go. And so I got to America. We hired the skis. We went to this massive resort. We got on the chairlift. We went up and up. And up, and I started to realize this was slightly higher than the slope at Matcham's. <laughs> and then we got to the top of the mountain. And you know that if you've ever been skiing, there's an area where everyone's kind of doing their boots up and they're getting ready to go skiing. And I kind of come off the chairlift successfully. And I think, well, I need to just uh, stop now and uh, do my boots up and get ready to go. Um, of course, I couldn't actually remember how to stop because that wasn't the bit I'd listened to in the lessons back at Matcham's. And so whilst everyone else is stopping, I'm just sliding quite slowly, admittedly, to start with across the top of the, uh, the mountain. Uh, towards the start of a, of a red run. So um, across uh, I went. Eventually, I went over the edge, and I'm starting to go down the main run. And I'm getting faster and faster and faster. And I'm thinking to myself, like, how do I stop? How do I stop? Now, most people, if they had never been skiing before, could probably think of one quite immediate way to stop, right? But I thought that would be too embarrassing. I can't fall over. Need to learn how to stop without falling over. So I spotted to the side of the piece there was a forest, and I thought to myself, if only I could ski into the forest, I could grab one of those trees and then I'd stop. So I went flying over the edge of the piste, into the off-piste, into the forest, and bang, into the first tree. Both skis are flat on my back, bruises from head to toe. My girlfriend skis over their family, and they say, like, what were you trying to do? I said, well, I was, I was trying to stop. She said, didn't they teach you how to stop? I said, yes, but I didn't listen to that part of the lesson. She said, well, if you can't remember, just fall over. So that's what I actually did for the rest of the day. I went faster, faster, fall, faster, faster, fall, faster, faster, fall. I was going to say all the way down the mountain, but actually I was so slow that by nightfall I was only halfway down the mountain. They had to come and rescue me on a ski-do. And the next day they took me to the nursery slope with the five-year-olds to learn to ski. For the rest of the week I tried to make up for lost time flying down black-mogled runs with, you know, in this terrible snowplow kind of formation. Um, but it was no good, because within two weeks of getting back to the UK, she'd, uh, she'd dumped me for a ski instructor. <laughs> and, uh, and within a year, she'd married him. So, so anyway, I want to speak this morning on the search for love, not that I'm claiming to be an experienced or expert on the subject. But I was in Denmark a couple of years ago, and I was speaking um, at a university event. And at the end of the event, I was kind of wandering around the tables, chatting to people. And I said to one of the um, tables um, full of students, well, what did you think of that? And I guess because they weren't British, they actually told me what they thought of it. And this girl just looked at me and she said, well, I'm not particularly into God, which is very honest, um, but maybe slightly discouraging at the end of a talk. So I said to her, 
what are you into? Because I've discovered that not everybody's into God, or at least I don't think so, but everyone's into something, right? So what are you into, I said. And she said, well, I'm into love. I think love is most important. So I looked at her and I said, okay, so what do you think love is? And she looked at me and she said, well, love is, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's, um, I don't know, she said. So I said, well, I'm not trying to be clever, but I just thought maybe if this is what's really important to you, you might know. And she said, well, well, I'm not sure. So I said, well, can I give you a definition of love? And she said, okay. And I said, just establish this first. I'm assuming you don't believe in God. She says, well, of course not. So I said, well, here's a definition of love. Love is a chemical reaction that's evolved in your brain to make you attracted to people, normally of the opposite sex, so that you re- reproduce and pass in your DNA. And she looked at me, and maybe because her boyfriend was sitting next to her, she said to me, that isn't love. And I said to her, why not? And she said, I don't know. (laughs) And actually, it's a good question, isn't it? What is love? See, there are plenty of people like that girl in Denmark who say, I don't care about God, I don't believe in God, but I do believe in love. But what is love? And if there is no God, and if we just live in a world which is just blind, pitiless indifference, just chance and time, that's all we are a product of, then then what is this thing called love? Listen to what one atheist ethicist said, Patricia Churchland, if we can put up the slide. She said, the principal chore of our brains is to get the body parts where they should be in order that the organism may survive. A fancier style of representing the world is advantageous so long as it enhances an organism's chances for survival. Pretty bleak view of human purpose, um, but very consistent. Or if you look at the next one, Francis Crick, the well-known scientist who, along with Watson, discovered the double helix structure of DNA, said this, you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are, in fact, no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. You're nothing but a pack of neurons. Now, I'm not sure whether he said that to his wife um, on (laughs) Valentine's Day, (coughs) to my lovely pack of neurons. My neurons love you very much. But again, it's very consistent. If that's all we are, that's all love is. It's just a reacting of the neurons in my brain. Or or let's look at the next one. Richard Dawkins, well-known atheist, said, it's just like sexual desire. We can no more help ourselves when we see a weeping unfortunate who is unrelated and unable to reciprocate. And we can help ourselves feeling lust for a member of the opposite sex who may be, sorry, I should say, infertile or otherwise unable to reproduce. Both are misfiring, Darwinian mistakes, blessed, precious mistakes. So what Richard Dawkins is saying is, is actually, in the evolutionary worldview, if, if you love someone, particularly if you love someone who can't reproduce, that's just a misfiring, it's a mistake, because it doesn't serve any purpose in the grand scheme of things. Now, he does say it's a blessed, precious mistake, and I'm not sure where he gets that value judgment from. It's certainly not from within that worldview, but, but that's all it is. Let's have a look at this definition. I wonder what you think this is a definition of. The anatomical juxtaposition of two orbicularis oris muscles in a state of contraction. Anyone know what that is? It's kissing, yes. Uh, you can stick up the other picture just in case you're not sure. There you go. That is a kiss. But again, I guess um, when you're kissing your girlfriend, your wife, your husband, or boyfriend, whatever, you know, that's maybe you're realizing there's more to it than that, right? We don't simply call it that. What is love? We sense that love is something more than that, don't we? We sense that love has a deeper significance. And actually, 
as I spoke to that girl in Denmark, she looked at me and she asked me that question. She said, well, what do you think love is as a Christian? I said, well, actually, I think love is far more than just a chemical reaction. It's what makes us who we are. I said, because you see, right at the heart of the Christian story is a God who is love. It's one of the most fundamental things you can say about God. It's not that just God sometimes loves. He is love in his very being. Now, of course, the question is, how could God love before there was anyone for God to love, before he created this world? The answer the Bible says is that God is a relational God. Eternity past shows a God of loving relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Christians have called that Trinity. This relational Trinitarian God who loves within himself and then creates people, it says in the Bible, in his image to reflect something of what he is like. So if God is love, then one of the most fundamental things we can say about us as humans is that we were created to love and to be loved. The Beatles said all you need is love, and they were more right than maybe they knew because it is true. All you need is love. According to the Bible, that is at the center of what it means to be human. And yet, I guess the question is this. If love is what makes us human, if love is so fundamentally important, why is it that so often our desires for love and our hopes for love leave us unfulfilled? Why is it so often our dreams can be shattered and broken? Why is it this longing can ache in such a way? And I want us to look this morning at a story um, from one of the accounts of Jesus' life, John's Gospel. It's on page 626, um, I think, in the Bibles that should be in the back of the chair in front of you, if you've not got one with you. It's a story of a woman who also was in this search for love. And I want to read it to us. Page 626. It's John's account of Jesus' life, and it's chapter 4. And I'll start reading from the first verse. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and uh, baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, could ask me, uh, ask a drink for for me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you've got nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never, become thir never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here and draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. 
Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husbands, for you have had five husbands, and the one you are now with is not your husband's. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He is called the, he is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. We'll pause there. So here's this woman that encounters Jesus. A woman who was thirsty physically. She's gone to a well in the middle of the day to get water. But a woman who we sense was thirsty more than just physically. And you can be, can't you? Thirsty in a deeper way. Thirsty in your heart. Thirsty for love and belonging and acceptance and intimacy. And a woman who had sought to quench that thirst for deeper satisfaction through, well, we're told there in verse 18, aren't we, relationships. She's been married five times. She's living with a guy now she's not married to. Um, In fact, slight kind of pause here. Um, I heard the story once of of a wedding it's taken place a few years ago now, before kind of text messages and that kind of thing. At the, um, at the reception, the best man was giving a speech, and at the start of his speech, he was asked to read out a number of messages from people who couldn't get to the wedding service. And one of them uh, was a telegram, and at the bottom of the telegram, it simply said, 1 John 4.18. It's a lovely verse that says, perfect love drives out fear. And so he was to read this verse out. Uh, But because he wasn't so kind of familiar with his way around the Bible, he got confused between the book of 1 John later in the New Testament and the Gospel of John that we've just read from. And so he stood up to this married couple and said to them, John chapter 4 verse 18, you've had five husbands and the one you're now with is not your husband. (laughs) Which isn't such an appropriate verse for a newly married couple. Now it wasn't true of that couple, but it was true of this woman. She'd be married five times. Now, I don't know the full story behind those relationships. I mean, we can imagine, can't we? Yeah, I'm told, stereotyping dramatically, that you know, women think about marriage from the day they start to think, and men think about marriage on the day they wake up and realize they're getting married. Um, but you can imagine this, this woman, can't you? you know, she's, she's got it all planned out. She's got the dress. She's got the church. She's got everything sorted. She's only five years old, but that doesn't matter, because she's going to find... Mr. Wright. And then one day, maybe at university in Samaria, she bumps into this guy in class, and he's just so gorgeous and so funny. And she just is blown off her feet. They go on romantic camel rides in the desert or whatever people did in those days. And, and everything's wonderful. And one night, under the stars, he gets down on one knee. He asks her to marry him, and she says yes. And they have that wonderful wedding, just as she planned. And everything seemed to be exactly what she hoped for for a while, and then it ended. And she's left disappointed, disillusioned, 
But then she meets another guy, number two, and she meets this guy. She says, ah, now I know why the first guy was no good, because this guy is just so much better looking than he is, and so much more funny than he was, and so much this, and he was that, and and this is the one that's going to work. And so they go for their romantic camel rides, and he gets down on one knee, and they have an even bigger wedding, and it's even more wonderful, and they go on an even better honeymoon, and, and it's wonderful for a while, and then that one ends too. And then she meets another guy, and she says, well, no, this time it's third time lucky. I mean, the first two, okay, I was getting kind of my bearings of what my type is, but now I've got it, and this is, gonna, this is the one. And so they do all the things again, and they get married, and for a while it's great. And then that one goes wrong. And then again. And again. And so by the time she gets number to, to number six, she thinks, well, you know, what's the point of getting married? It's not going to work out. We could save ourselves a lot of time and a lot of money by just living together. Let's save ourselves the hassle. She starts out with these really high hopes of this relationship that will satisfy, and she's left so disillusioned and empty. She's by a well in the middle of the day. No one went to a well in the middle of the day. She wants to be there on her own. She doesn't want to see anyone. And it strikes me that we can oscillate, can't we, in our views of love between those two kind of extremes. There's the kind of the ultimate view of love that says, yes, love is the thing that's going to satisfy me. And isn't it interesting in love songs? They are always ultimate, aren't they? No one ever sings a love song that says, you know, I love you with a lot of my heart. Or I will love you for most of my life. They, they would be rubbish love songs, wouldn't they? Because we want someone to say, I love you with all my heart. I will love you for all my life. We want that kind of ultimate, all-encompassing, all-satisfying love. That's what we want, right? But then experienced strikes home, and we say, but, but life's not like that, is it? It doesn't satisfy completely. It doesn't fill us, and, and we can be left disappointed. Look, I know some people here, like myself, haven't been married once, let alone five times, but, but maybe we do know something of that disappointment. The hopes and the longings that can be dashed and broken in all sorts of different ways. This deep desire we have for this love that will ultimately satisfy that somehow is never satisfied, right? Now, now why did those relationships end? We're, we're not told. We, we have no idea. I guess for one of three potential reasons. It could have been that they died. And sometimes we are left hurt in life by things that are no one's fault. I think of a good friend of mine who, whose husband died just over a year ago. And the pain that she feels as she's left dealing with the, the brokenness of that. It could be that they cheated on her. She was the innocent party, and they were the ones that went off. And, and again, sometimes we are hurt in life by the actions of other people, aren't we? Just a few weeks ago, I got a phone call from a friend, absolutely broken because he discovered that his wife was having an affair. And the pain that we feel because of other people's actions, maybe you felt that. Or, or maybe it was actually her. Maybe she was the one that cheated. Maybe it was her actions that led to the end of these relationships. I think of another friend a few years ago who phoned me up and told me he was having an affair himself. And sometimes we're hurt by others, but sometimes we have to admit that we're the ones that hurt others, and it's our actions that hurt others, and also sometimes ourselves as well in the process. This self-destructive side of our human nature that so often messes things up, 
Francis Spufford, the theologian, put it this way. He said, sin is the human propensity to screw things up. And we do have that, don't we? John Mayer, the singer-songwriter in a song called Gravity, says this. He says, what makes this man with all the love his heart can stand dream of ways of throwing it all away? We screw it up. And here's this woman who, for whatever reason, her or for others, is left broken with all of these past relationships. And Jesus meets her. It's interesting because it says there at the beginning of the chapter in verse 3, he had, um, so um, verse 3, 4, he had to pass through Samaria. Now actually, geographically, he didn't. And actually most Jews wouldn't have done. He didn't have to go through Samaria just to get to where he wanted to go to. But of course, he did have to go through Samaria if he wanted to meet this woman. Seems that Jesus was willing to go out of his way to go and meet her. He was willing to break cultural and ethnic and religious stereotypes to meet her. A man speaking to a woman, a Jew speaking to a Samaritan. He wants to meet her. Jesus still wants to meet with people today. He's interested in individuals. He's interested in your life and mine. Now, what would you expect Jesus to say to a woman like this? I guess if we knew nothing of the rest of the story, we might expect a religious leader to say one of two things. We might expect him to condemn her, to say to her something like this, you've had how many husbands? Flip, there's no hope for you. You're a failure. Just to condemn her, to write her off because of her past. I mean, she certainly doesn't look like she's kind of, you know, number one entry into a religious community, right? Looking at her past. Or you might expect Jesus not to condemn her, but if he's at kind of the other end of the extreme, to condone her and just say, You've had five husbands? Fine, have another five. Have more, you know, do what you like. doesn't matter. Anything goes. But Jesus doesn't do either, does he? He doesn't condemn her, but nor does he condone her. What does he do? He says in verse 10, he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He says, if, if only you knew who I was and what I could offer you, I could give you living water. Now, she at first gets completely confused. Look at verse 11. The woman said to him, sir, you've got nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where are you going to get it? She thinks Jesus is talking about some kind of super special water that's just going to quench your physical thirst forever. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You've not understood. Verse 13. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will, become, will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, what I'm offering is not some super sprite. I'm offering something that's not physical. It's, it's something that can satisfy you deeper down. This living water. And he says, what is it? It's eternal life. Now, for most people in our culture, you hear those words, eternal life, and it's a complete turn-off, isn't it? Because the first image that comes to my mind when I hear those words naturally would be kind of harps and choir practice and people wearing big nighties and people who have passed the Daz doorstep challenge and that kind of thing, yeah? And it's like distant, and it's like, what has that got to do with this woman? But, but later in chapter 17, don't turn there now, Jesus says what eternal life is. He says eternal life is not just a quantity of life that starts when you die that goes on forever. It's also a quality of life that begins now. 
And he says, eternal life is best defined as this. It's a relationship with the God who made you. An intimate relationship. He says it's to know God, not just to know intellectually, but to know deep in your heart the God who made you. And Jesus says, what do I want to offer you? I want to offer you a relationship, but one that really can satisfy. You see, what was this woman's problem? This woman's problem was not that she wanted the wrong thing, but she was looking for it in the wrong place. See, she wanted love to satisfy her deep desires in her heart. And in one sense, she was absolutely right. Why? Because the Bible says it is only love that can really satisfy the deep desires of our heart. But what was her problem? She thought that the love of a guy could do that ultimately and, and finally. And actually, the reality is it couldn't and it never can. So as I said, you know, love songs love to kind of make everything ultimate, don't they? Um, I have to confess that on my iPhone, I have some music by Daniel Beddingfield. Um, and uh, please don't judge me for that. Uh, but, uh, but in one of the songs by Daniel Beddingfield, he has this line where he says, you know, um, I need to have a reason to get up in the morning. You used to be the one that put a smile on my face. And you listen to this song, and you know, part of you thinks, like, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if someone sang a song about you in that way, you know, you're the reason that I live. But actually, no. It'd be awful. I'm not just saying that because I'm single. Uh, but I'm saying that because if, if you are the reason for someone's existence, if you are the main source of their life and joy and happiness, can I kind of tell you this? You will fail them. And if you look to someone else, another human being, to meet all of your needs for love and intimacy and belonging and life, they will fail you. It's not that human love is bad. We were made for human love. The Bible says human love is good. It's not that we're to live in some monastic kind of isolation from other human beings. Of course not. But it's just not big enough to meet that deeper need. Jesus says the only thing that can ultimately really and fully satisfy is to know the God who made you. To have a relationship with the God of the universe. And he says, I am the one that can give you that kind of deep satisfaction. Now the question, of course, is how can Jesus do that? How can Jesus offer to this woman deep satisfaction? I mean, imagine if I were to say this morning, you know, all of your needs and desires in life can be met in me. You would think, what's he on? Like, you can't do that. What an outrageous claim. And, and yet Jesus makes these outrageous claims, doesn't he? He can say to this woman, I can fill your need for satisfaction in life in ways that no guy can. He can walk into a funeral service and say, I am the answer to death. I mean, who is Jesus to make these kind of claims? And how can he make those kind of claims? And the answer is because of who he is and because of what he's done, because of who he is. It's interesting, in this story, one of the things that we see happening is this woman slowly discovering who Jesus is. Down in verse 12, she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? She thinks, like, who are you? Jacob dug the well. Who do you think you are? She just thinks, well, you know, you're just another guy. But then in verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Jesus is more than just another guy because he knows stuff about her life that no one told him. Who is he? And in verse 25, the woman said, well, I know the Messiah is coming, called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell all things. Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. 
you can imagine this woman falling almost into the well at this point. I speak to you, I am he. Jesus says, look, I'm not just another guy. I am the one that was promised to come. I am God breaking into human history. I am the one that can offer you this life. I'm just not another guy. I'm the one who can put you in touch with the God who made you. Jesus can make that claim because of who he is. But secondly, he can make that claim because of what he's done. Later, again, you don't need to turn there now, in chapter 19 of John's Gospel, we read the account of Jesus' crucifixion. He's taken outside the city of Jerusalem. He's nailed to a Roman cross. It would have been a horrific, barbaric form of death. Nails into his hands and feet, a crown of thorns placed upon his, his head, mockery and spitting, torture beforehand. And as Jesus is on the cross... He says something. He says this. He says, I thirst. Now, we know that one of the things that would have been terrible about crucifixion in that kind of culture and climate would have been a a raging thirst that would have developed as you hung there for hours, for some for days on a cross. So, in one sense, it was perfectly natural for Jesus to feel thirst. And yet, there were all sorts of other pains that Jesus would have felt that might have been much greater. The hands, his feet, his head. And yet Jesus doesn't mention any of those. The only thing he says is, I thirst. And it strikes me that the thirst that Jesus is speaking about there is is not just a physical thirst. Just as this woman wasn't just physically thirsty. But as Jesus dies on the cross, he experiences something of that cosmic thirst, that inner spiritual thirst. That thirst that we have because we are separated from the God who made us. And yet on the cross, Jesus, who's always lived in eternal loving relationship with God the Father, experiences that. The rest of the Bible tells us that that on the cross, Jesus experienced a separation of that ultimate relationship. So that our relationship with the God who made us could be mended. Jesus faced exclusion so that we could face welcome. He was rejected so that we could be accepted. He carried the can. He took what we should deserve so that we didn't have to. He experienced thirst so he could say to this woman, but not just to that woman, but to us, I can quench that thirst. I can meet that deeper need for love because I am the one who experienced that thirst for you. I can meet what you really need. Now, what I'd love to do right now is introduce you to my friend Mike, who's a wonderful poet who would come up here and say a wonderful poem. I can't bring him here because he's not in Bournemouth or Paul, uh, but I have brought him here on a video. So just listen to Mike as we reflect on what we've heard. say I fell in love with you it seems like something happened to them at least as much as they happened to something so what if love is like adopting a baby lion 
You did not create it, but it's yours. And usually it's friendly, but its claws still frighten you sometimes, and you lie down next to it at night, and it's warm and furry, but you're never quite sure if it will eat you while you're sleeping, because the lines are a little blurry about whether it belongs to you or you belong to it, and love is like that a little bit, isn't it? Love is like a hunger. Like a tingling desire that is never quite satisfied. The burning of a fire inside that says that this is right. And the bigger it gets, the brighter it glows. The more stuff you feed it, the hungrier it grows. Its greed is increasing. Its need is exceeding. All of these moments you give it to consume. And you know in your heart, if you don't keep feeding it, it will start to consume you. There is a black hole at the heart of love. Distorting and swallowing up time and space but at the same time holding the universe together. So please don't get me wrong, I'm not saying love is bad, I'm just saying that it's strong. And the only thing strong enough to save us from bad love is a better love. So what about a love that's not just 50-50? Not just give and take? Not just pull and push and twist and shove and bend and break? What if Prince Charming would not steal kisses just for his own sake, but would sleep the sleep of death himself so Sleeping Beauty could awake? What if love would bite the poison apple? What if love would drain the poison cup? What if love would give itself completely before it would give up? What if there was one love unchanging? What if this one love was enough? What if the beauty could stop fading? And yes, the course of true love's rough, but what if one had walked the way before us? If his bare feet had trod that path so our souls could be bare and safe and tender because his are pierced with shattered glass. What if this one love was unfailing? What if this one love was enough? What if the beauty could stop fading? What if this love is enough? Jesus says there is a love that is enough and he wants to offer it to us. And so I guess my question as we close is this. Have you ever experienced that, that love? Have you ever tasted of that living water? Have you ever experienced that? And if not, I guess my question would be, why not? What would stop you from experiencing that this morning? You know, some people say to me, they said, ah, oh, yeah, but the problem with this, it's all just a bit of a psychological crutch. You, know, you kind of want this kind of love because you know, it fills that desire in your heart, and that's why you think it's true, and it's not really true at all. It's just a crutch. But but of course, that argument works both ways. I mean, you could say, yeah, Christianity is only true because you want it to be true. But equally, you could say that atheism is only true because you don't want there to be a God and everything else. And so it doesn't actually help you know what's true or not. And actually, there are lots of reasons that we know that Christianity is objectively true, that it really is based on a real historical event, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, not just some psychological crutch. Of course, there are other people who'd say, well, how, how would this relationship with God change me? And the answer is, I don't know. Do you know why? Because it's a relationship. And it doesn't come with a kind of pre-list of kind of things that are going to happen to your life, because that's not how relationships work, is it? They're kind of a bit scary, because you don't know in what way it is going to change your life, but it will. But if it's a relationship with a God who loves you enough to give himself for you, It'd be worth getting involved, wouldn't it? Someone you can trust, whatever that's going to mean for the future. And I can tell you, it's not always going to be easy, but it will always be worth it. Some people say, well, look, I don't know enough to get started in this relationship. I was talking to a girl recently, and she said, look, I haven't even read the whole Bible yet. 
I said, come on, most of the people in my church haven't read the whole Bible yet, but it hasn't stopped them getting started. You don't need to know it all. Do you know why? Because a relationship is how you get to know someone. So you get started with Jesus, and then you get to know him, not on the outside, like to try and pass an exam, but from the inside in a relationship with a God who loves you. So why not? How does that relationship start? Well, well, I've watched quite a few relationships start. I've watched quite a few marriages. I've even married a few people to other people, if you know what I mean. Um, and it's pretty simple, isn't it? How does a relationship start? You know, I or whoever's the minister stands at the front of a church like this, and there's the, the groom at the front of the church, and he looks all right. And then in walks the bride, and she looks stunning. And she walks in, and she comes, and all the faces are turned, and she walks down the aisle, and she faces the groom. And, and then the minister at the front just asks some questions, doesn't he? turns to the groom, do you take this drop-dead gorgeous girl to be your wife? And he, of course, says, I do. And turns to the bride and say, do you take this bloke to be your husband? And for some incredible miracle, she says, I do. And that's just about it, isn't it? There's a few more words, there's a kiss, I think, and, and that's pretty much how it starts. There's, there's literally just a commitment from two people. You might wonder why I haven't done it myself, if it's that easy. <laughs> but, but that's how a relationship starts. It takes commitment from two people. And it's like that with God. It's as if God were to say to Jesus, do you take these sinners? Will you love them? Will you stick with them? And Jesus holds out his arms on the cross and he says, I will. He made a commitment to us, and it was costly. And then it's as if God turns to us and say, says to us, and will you take this, Jesus? A relationship takes commitment from two sides, doesn't it? God has made his commitment to us. Have you ever made your commitment to him? If not, why not do it this morning and get started? I'm going to finish with a short prayer that that might be helpful for people in that situation, just to echo in your heart as I pray, as a way of just starting that relationship and saying, yeah, I want to begin. So let's have a moment of quiet. And then if you'd like to, just silently in your heart, you could pray with me. Lord God, I'm sorry for the way that I've often kept you out of my life. And I'm sorry for the way that I've often made a mess of things, hurting others, hurting myself, but most of all, hurting you. Thank you that Jesus took what I deserve so that I don't have to. Thank you that he was thirsty so that I could be satisfied, that he was separated so that I could be accepted. Please come into my life now and help me to start this relationship with you and to live with you from this moment onwards, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Just um, before I step down and hand back, there are two ways that you could respond to what we've heard this morning. If you've said this morning, I really would want to get started in this relationship, but 
you know, this is new for me. We'd love to help you, okay? The guys at the church here, we'd really love to do that. One of the best ways just to make sure that they can do that will be on the Connect card that you were given on the way in, just to leave your details and to tick that first box that says, I'd like to find out more about following Jesus, okay? If you tick that box and leave your, your name and your number, then someone from the church will be able to get in touch and they'll be able to really tell you th- some ways that they can help you out with that. Um, a relationship with God also brings us into relationship with other Christians, and they really want to encourage you uh, as you start out in that relationship. So you can fill it out and then make sure you pass it in on, on the way out. Um, the other way you can respond is in a few moments, we're going to take communion, which is just a way of remembering what Jesus did for us, the bread and the wine symbolizing his body and his blood, that thirst that he experienced so that we could be satisfied. And whether you've been a follower of Jesus for years or whether this morning has been the first time you say, yeah, I want to make that commitment, then, then why not as a way of celebrating and remembering what he's done for you, um, join in this morning uh, with a full understanding um, of what that really means. Uh, but I'll hand back. Thank you. That's great. Thank you, Michael. Um, we're going to uh, continue to sing in just a moment as well, but let's just revisit um, something that Michael said. Jesus said to that woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water, this natural water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let's just stand together for a moment.